Everyone, nice to see a full house here on a warm afternoon. Thank you for coming to CSIS. Welcome. My name is Matthew Goodman. I hold the Simon Chair in Political Economy here in CSIS and delighted to welcome you to this um, unique opportunity to talk to Kurt Tong, an old uh, friend and colleague of, I can see several in the room in addition to me, um, and um, former or just recently departed Consul General in Hong Kong and Macau. Um, and I'll introduce him in a second, but first, just to get through the administrative uh, uh, issues, uh, please turn off your phone or put it on stun. Um, and uh, if there are any kind of incident, which is unlikely, has never happened, uh, just follow me. There are emergency exits down here, and we rally at National Geographic uh, behind here. And can, as John Hamry always says, there's a nice exhibit uh, right now on the Queens of Egypt or something. Um, so um, welcome, by the way, welcome to our on online audience as well. Uh, delighted to have you with us as well. Um, so um, delighted that uh, Kurt uh, Tong is here to uh, give a speech that I think he was kind of supposed to give a few weeks ago, according to the press, um, uh, before he left Hong Kong um, and uh, didn't. I think hopefully we're going to hear a version of that speech, maybe one a little more liberated version, perhaps, because Kurt has now uh, retired from the Foreign Service after 30 years there. Uh, he is partner at the Asia Group uh, now here in Washington, but he served uh, for, I think, almost 30 years in the State Department in most major posts around the East Asia and Pacific region in particular, um, and uh, also in a couple of important uh, jobs at the State Department. He was the Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary for Economics and Business Affairs, um, and also was the APEC Ambassador uh, at a time when he and I worked, one of the times that he and I worked together in government. Um, and uh, so he's done uh, pretty much every interesting job around uh, East Asia and in economics and business, which is very close to, of course, our hearts and the uh, Simon Chair. So we're delighted. Uh, Kurt's the perfect person to address, I hope, a broader range of issues beyond uh, uh, the immediate, obviously, issues of interest in Hong Kong. Um, let me just tell two quick stories about Kurt. First, um, I actually knew about Kurt before I met Kurt because in the 1980s when I was here in grad school, and I think he was at Princeton, the Woodrow Wilson, uh, school, he uh, wrote a tract, a sort of pamphlet called Time for Plan B, I think it was called, something like that. Um, and it was actually a very provocative piece about how in the midst of the U.S.-Japan trade frictions of the time, uh, that the U.S. and Japan should negotiate a trade, a free trade agreement. I mean, that's what it boiled down to, as I recall. And that was, you know, kind of 30 years ahead of his time, um, and um, perhaps a little uh, fanciful at the time, maybe still fanciful on, on, uh, in some people's minds, but, uh, but Kurt's been an innovative and a forward-thinking uh, um, person for, for, as I say, since even before I knew him. Uh, the other story I want to tell, which I admit is a little self-indulgent, is that I, I don't know if it was the same for Kurt, but um, definitely uh, my singular accomplishment in uh, U.S. government, uh, in my U.S. government uh, uh, time, dozen, dozen years or so in government, was working with Kurt on a project which was uh, when he was APEC ambassador, um, every other country in APEC had accepted this little card called the APEC business travel card as a uh, passport and visa, effectively, to get into other APEC economies, the 21 economies around the region. The United States had never acknowledged this card. I guess they gave special, they allowed people to go through the diplomatic line, but they didn't really uh, acknowledge this card, didn't issue this card. There wasn't legislation to enable this card. 
And Kurt came to me when I was at the White House and he was doing APEC and said, uh, you know, we could fix this, you know, we should, we should do this. And it was part of a series of things that Kurt uh, did as APEC ambassador, uh, which were under his slogan for the year when we hosted in 2011, if I didn't say that, um, uh, uh, which he entitled, sort of entitled, uh, get stuff done. That's the PG version of what uh, the theme of our, of our APEC year was. And this was one of those pieces of stuff that we thought we could fix. So we actually, long story short, we got, he got uh, this legislation um, uh, sponsored and passed through Congress. The president signed it at the Sheraton Waikiki in uh, November of uh, 2011. Uh, walked out on stage, and I had had a really hard time with Mike Froman, my boss at the White House, convincing him this was worth White House time to try to get this little card issued. And I told Mike, no, I think this is worth, worth doing. President walks out on stage, gets a big round of applause. Uh, he gets applause, of course, at the end of his speech. Um, the only other applause he got during his speech, President Obama, was when he said, I just signed the APEC gold card back here in the back room. The place went wild. A thousand business people stood up and applauded. And so if you don't have your APEC card, uh, get one and thank Kurt Tong for making that happen. So that's enough of me. Uh, uh, so Kurt, uh, please come up. Please uh, join me in welcoming Kurt to the stage. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Matt. Good afternoon, everybody. It's a real pleasure. The, um, the card costs $100, but I think it's a good investment. If you get your, uh, you got to get your global entry first, and then you get the APEC card, and it saves an uh, infinite number of hours in various Asian airports. The, um, uh, it is a real pleasure to be here, and I thank you all for taking an hour uh, out of your afternoon on a, another beautiful sunny day here in Washington. And I, and I want to say thank you to the, the CSIS for your patience. This was once rescheduled um, uh, for various reasons uh, relating to getting clearance. Uh, and, uh, and, I, and I appreciate your flexibility in that. And also, Scott, thank you for, for, uh, for being involved today. The, um, the, that, that's also part of the reason why the title for my discussion today is so boring. Um, something, I don't even remember what it is, something like Hong Kong and the political economy of somewhere. And the, um, uh, that was part of the clearance process as well, because if you say, say you're going to give a boring talk, then there's a good chance that, that your uh, State Department desk officer might let you get away with it. But the, um, uh, an actual better title for the discussion I'd like to, to make, and I'll just talk for about 10 minutes and then, and then we'll have some conversation with all of you, um, is, would be something along the lines of the United States loves Hong Kong, uh, or um, why the United States loves Hong Kong, or why the United States should care about Hong Kong, uh, or why we should be, um, and you might find this counterintuitive given current events, but why we should actually be optimistic about Hong Kong and its and its future and its role in the Asia-Pacific economy. Um, or what the US, um, China, uh, and the Hong Kong governments might do about the current situation there or the long-term prospects um, for that important city. So delving into that, um, I think many of you have been there. Who's been to Hong Kong? Pretty much everybody. Who hasn't been to Hong Kong? Oh, just a couple folks. OK, well, you got to go. You get the, first, you got to get the APEC travel card. <laughs> And then uh, try and take the direct flight. Um, uh, Cathay's got a direct flight now. It's really exciting. It's very expensive. Um, but if you, if you can afford a ticket, uh, go for it. The, um, 
but Hong Kong is a, is a very special place. It's been there for 175 years as uh, an important trading uh, entity, a place where business has been conducted on, uh, with a theme of being a very free place to do business. It has low taxes. It's an easy place to invest. It always scores very high on various international measures of economic um, freedom. But the, uh, the more important characteristics of Hong Kong actually date from the, the way that it was developed and its legal structure. Um, Hong Kong is characterized by a profound respect for the rule of law. Uh, it has an independent judiciary, which is, is respected around the world. And in fact, um, um, many people don't know this, but a, a judgment reached in Hong Kong courts can actually have an influence on British law or on Australian law or Canadian law, because it's all part of the same um, common law tradition. Uh, Hong Kong has significant freedom of expression, um, freedom of assembly, which are guaranteed in the basic law establishing the special administrative region uh, in 1997. Um, and it has, a, and increasingly over the last many decades, um, 50 years or so, a reputation for, for good governance and, and clean governance. Um, and and effective governance, and that is all added up to a, a, a positive business environment and an environment where many people choose to travel uh, and work and live. The founding characteristic of all of that, or the most important factor enabling all of that to continue, despite uh, the return of Hong Kong to, to Chinese sovereignty in 1997, is the autonomy which is guaranteed to Hong Kong under the one country two systems framework and the basic law which, which establishes that. Um, to the extent that, and, and I've got a couple actual members from our, our, our quote unquote country team uh, in, in Hong Kong, and you've heard me say this uh, before, um, the, the phrase that it's the autonomy stupid. You know, you've all heard about it's the economy stupid and Bill Clinton using that for his camp successful campaign in 1992. With, with respect to Hong Kong, I'm not accusing any of you of being stupid. Please don't misunderstand that. But, but accusing ourselves sometimes that we don't realize that that is actually the, the key to Hong Kong's long-term competitiveness as well of, as, as its way of life. With that high degree of autonomy under the one country, two systems framework, the city has been a roaring success. And it still is. Even today, with demonstrations happening on, on a regular basis, week after week, the economy continues to forge forward. Deals are being made. The, the financial sector is sound, lots of business activity is continuing to happen. It's important to keep that in mind and keep that, that in perspective. Um, some of the interesting characteristics. Well over half of all investment, um, non-portfolio investment, coming to and from China to the rest of the world passes through Hong Kong in one form or another. Why would that be? Well, it's because of the legal structure and the reliability of the, of the Hong Kong courts and the reliability of, of Hong Kong law and the advantages of using that law and that tax structure to, to execute deals. This, this, this makes Hong Kong really, I think, everyone, most people in financial sectors would agree that it, it would probably be considered the number three financial center um, globally, with London and, and New York perhaps playing a more important role than Hong Kong, but Hong Kong swinging in there as, as a very, very important and certainly the most significant financial center uh, in Asia in terms of the range of products that are offered, the types of activities uh, that are conducted. So even today, with China 
having grown. And many people say, well, is Hong Kong that important anymore? Because now it's only 3% of Chinese GDP, whereas in 1997, it was more like 15% of Chinese GDP because of the differing differential growth rates. But the fact of the matter is that China's growth actually makes Hong Kong more important because of those characteristics that I mentioned, which are not duplicated anywhere uh, within the rest of the PRC in terms of a place to make deals and, and, and conduct business. Um, and that, I think, is, ver is very important. And that's one of the reasons why there's 1,400 U.S. companies that, that are uh, you know, significant U.S. companies that operate there. Uh, and that the United States has more, by, by proportion, more um, regional headquarters in Hong Kong than any other uh, foreign investor. Um, so our companies consider Hong Kong to be a very important place to do business, and they really uh, continue to base their entire Asia operations there, with Singapore being the other very, very important uh, center for that kind of activity. So what's the problem then? I've described a kind of very positive um, state of affairs. The problems come from, from I, I would say, forgetfulness or, or people losing track of what are the, the core sources of, of competitiveness and relevance for, for the Hong Kong people as well as the Hong Kong um, economy, the, the sources of, that make it a good place to live as well as a good place um, to invest. And I think there's a tendency to, to forget where that success comes from. Um, on the Beijing side, there's a tendency, and I think this is particularly true under recent leadership um, in Beijing, to think that, that, chi that Hong Kong's success is a reflection of China's success. And I just said it was, right? But that's not the reason why it's, it's successful. It's successful because it's different from China, um, but it's still part of China. That's, that's the, the ingredient that, that makes it all work. It's like trying to make bread without yeast, right? You can have a lot of dough money, uh, or a lot of, of uh, other ingredients, flour and whatnot. But if you don't have some yeast in there to make it work, make it pop, it's not going to be a yummy cake to have. And that, that, that gets lost. People lose, lose track of that. And I think the Hong Kong government also has tended in recent years to a bit lose track of that, of that importance uh, element of, uh, of what makes Hong Kong tick. Another thing that has sometimes underestimated, and I think it's been, become very clear in the last few months, is the, the, there's a tendency to underestimate the anxiety that stems from this one country, two systems framework, which is, you know, kind of a, by, in itself, it's an, an oxymoron. And, and, and if it's not, if it doesn't handle properly, it can become sort of a same bed, different dreams type situation. Uh, and I think that that's important to keep a focus on that and address, address it and be explicit about, about it. Um, because the, the perceptions of the reality of the situation depend upon they're in the eye of the beholder. Actions by the mainland towards Hong Kong, from the mainland perspective, are perfectly benign and, and maybe even beneficial to Hong Kong. But, but from the perspective of people in Hong Kong, they actually upset the status quo and change the situation there in ways that are unwelcome uh, to investors or to the people there. And understanding those perceptions and the gap between them, I think, is very, very important. Uh, and, and it's that gap that then gets reflected in Hong Kong politics as well, in the struggle between the, the pan-democratic forces and pro-establishment forces in the Legislative Council or in broader uh, Hong Kong politics in terms of how things play out. So it's not, it's not a good thing to underestimate that fundamental friction that comes from a one country, two system situation, even though that is also the source 
of the success of the city. So keeping all of that working uh, is tricky and it's particularly difficult when the, the city also has uh, some of the um, uh, most severe economic inequalities anywhere uh, in an urban environment where there's a, a very broad gap between, between the wealthy and, and the not wealthy and that has become reflected in the difficult circumstances of lower middle class people and lower class people and finding a place to live and, and, and work and succeed um, in a, a very, very expensive economy. So in that context, the steps taken by, by the mainland government, um, by the PRC government in the last five years or so, to try and to push in the direction of making Hong Kong seem less different from a, in a governance perspective and a little less uncomfortable for the mainland, because it is kind of uncomfortable for the mainland too, that Hong Kong has freedom of expression. What's going on with that, right? We don't let our people do that. Why should we let these people who are Chinese citizens do that? Um, that, that push to make things a little more consistent between, between uh, the mainland and Hong Kong has actually then engendered greater anxiety and led to a lot of problems. And some of the things that, that the U.S. government, I'm no longer in the U.S. government, I think that's been made clear, but which it, it has pointed out in recent years has been problems are things like the National People's Congress stepping in on this whole question of uh, qualifications for legislators. Uh, preemptively, while there was a court case still pending in Hong Kong, or the the push to ban the Hong Kong National Party, which no one had heard of until it was banned, and then once it was banned, suddenly it became uh, a famous entity, um, kicking out a, a foreign journalist for for ho hosting a public meeting with that um, still almost banned uh, entity, um, and and in general, kind of using Hong Kong law, it's a, as I said, it's a place with rule of law to push in the direction of amalgamation between, between the Chinese system and the Hong Kong system. Um, that then sets the context for um, the, the story around the extradition bill, which is the most recent set of circumstances that, that have happened and, and provoked uh, the big demonstrations in Hong Kong. I mean, people like myself have, have been warning uh, the Hong Kong government leaders as well as mainland government leaders that if you start to mess with the, the politics of Hong Kong uh, in a interventionist way from the mainland perspective, uh, you can start to impact people's confidence in the economic structure. And I think that that's what, what played out in the case of this extradition bill where in fact when it was first proposed the, the, the most dedicated opponents to it were actually business people who were concerned about how it would impact them personally, um, given their long-term uh, investments and, and, and record of doing business um, with the mainland and some of the, the non-transparencies involved in, in mainland law. And they started to push back on it quite a bit. And in the process of pushing back and push, pushing forward and negotiating and whatnot, the Hong Kong public got involved. And, and somehow, and I honestly don't completely understand yet why the Hong Kong public thought that this was such a big deal for them personally, but they, but they did. And, they, and, and I think it has to do with the underlying anxieties that I described about the one country, two systems framework. And then we've seen what, what happened over the last couple of months with very, very large demonstrations and, and, and very emotional um, acting out, if you will, on this whole question about, about Hong Kong's future direction and what should happen to the city. So finally then, what should, what should 
everyone be doing about this. I think it's clear from, from, from what I've said that from my perspective, um, the mainland would be well advised to just kind of dial it back a little bit in terms of how it approaches uh, Hong Kong affairs. Just give, give, it, give it the space that it stated that it would in the Sino-British Joint Declaration uh, or, or in the basic law and reestablish re a little more distance between, between um, the, the rest of China uh, and Hong Kong. That, that, that's a, when I say that, being a foreigner, most Chinese people react negatively to that. And I recognize that that is the case, but, it, but it's still a good suggestion or the, the right advice, I believe, because respecting Hong Kong's autonomy will then allow Hong Kong to operate in the way that it always has, which is redounded to the benefit of, of China. Now, the corollary to that is that the mainland should be confident in, in Hong Kong and its role in, in, in China. Certainly, the track record is one of, of making an enormous contribution to China's economic development and its social development. And it's, and it's bridging to the, to the rest of the international community. And so I think that that, that is basically the set of advice um, that, that applies to the, the mainland government. Um, for the Hong Kong government, um, and this is advice that I gave them back when I worked in, in government not so long ago, what, I think that the useful thing to do would be to really re-identify with the people, but also re-identify with Hong Kong's international characteristics. Um, Hong Kong has an official slogan of being Asia's world city and, and really doubling down on that notion and, and, and really doubling down on the idea that, that Hong Kong is a, is a place to make connections uh, that has an international characteristics but is also part of China uh, and, and reach out and sell that, that concept I think would be, would be um, uh, very, very useful. Uh, sometimes I'd mention that there are sort of three kinds of money in Hong Kong. I don't want to talk to, you know, make it seem like I'm only about business, but it's really an important part of the city. And there's, there's Hong Kong money, and there's mainland money, and there's uh, foreign money. And each one of those is actually essential to the, the cocktail that is the, the success, the economic success story of the city. And they're each drawn to one another. So without the foreign money, the mainland money doesn't want to come to Hong Kong. Uh, and without the, the mainland participation, then the foreign money is not as interested. And it's bringing them together in a, in a, under the uh, pre-existing framework, which I think is really uh, the key to success. So then finally, what about the United States? Um, there's really two things that I think any foreign government should do, not just the US. One is engage a lot with Hong Kong. Um, keep, the, keep the energy level up in terms of the relationship between uh, at government to government relationship, but also private sector relations between uh, foreigners and, 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 uh, and Hong Kong, both as a city and, and as a government. Just engage a lot, uh, do lots of activities, and help, that helps reinforce the autonomy muscles uh, in, of, of the Hong Kong government and the Hong Kong people, and then feeds, again, this, this, this positive cycle of international activity um, relating to China and building bridges um, internationally. And the other is to be, to be frank, like, like I am today, and be truthful about how we see the situation um, on, on the ground in Hong Kong, and, and not either, either, on the one hand, pull punches or, or downplay the concerns, but also, on the other hand, not exaggerate them. And, and I do get worried that sometimes people in the United States choose to, to criticize the situation in Hong Kong 
um, disproportionately because it's China and because we feel like we're in a strategic relation, uh, competitive relationship with China, and therefore, if we can score a point on Hong Kong, then that you know mark one up for our team. But that that's really not very useful in for the city or for the long-term relationships that can be built um, using Hong Kong. So last thing I'll say, I, I guess I probably went longer than I expected, um, is what does this mean uh, in a broader sense, or how does this, this discussion that I've had with you reflect the, the challenges of making um, international economic policy uh, and foreign policy for the United States uh, more generally? I think one lesson about recent uh, U.S. policy towards Hong Kong is that, that um, so-called second-tier issues. Now, I, I used to you know, congratulate myself for being de facto ambassador in a place that was a second-tier account because then you don't get as many visitors, you don't get like people calling you in the middle of the night, uh, lots of pressure from Washington isn't, isn't that great. But you still can't ignore it. Right? And it's important to, to keep them in mind and, and keep an eye on them and, and keep after them. Uh, because later they can become, suddenly seem more important, as has been the case with Hong Kong. And I do think that recently, um, particularly under this administration, there's been a tendency to focus on primary goals, trade with China, um, the North Korea issue, uh, some other issue sets, Iran, whatever, what have you. And that the second tier stuff kind of uh, slips. And, and that happens in an implementation sense. And one of my self-reflections as, as a person working on Hong Kong for three years is that we really didn't do as good a job as we should have uh, in, in doing what I said should be our objective earlier in engaging with the Hong Kong government and, and with Hong Kong. We didn't get enough visitors. We didn't get enough government-to-government um, -government interactions and negotiations and, and new initiatives as we should have done. Um, to support uh, Hong Kong's autonomy and help it develop um, as a useful asset for the international community as well as, as for China. The second lesson, I think, is that, is that values matter. Um, that's, a lot of people say that these days, it, but I think it's absolutely um, true that, that the co conduct of foreign policy is not uh, just a, a process of reaching a number of deals uh, or a series of, of negotiations uh, across the table or trying to reach some specific objectives. You also need to have a, a framework in mind that you're trying to, to explain and to sell of how you view how the international community should be structured, what those relationships should be like, and how they um, should be shaped going forward. And Hong Kong's a good example of that because in many ways what I described about the, the city of Hong Kong is, is a reflection of, of a lot of shared values with the United States of rule of law, openness, um, capitalism, uh, ref a ref reflection of, of, uh, of, of participatory governance, et cetera. Uh, those are values that we share, and, if, and we can reinforce those if we're clear about what our values are. Because I, I worry in, in recent days or recent months, years, that there's been a tendency towards defining what we don't like as the United States and not enough uh, of an emphasis on what we're about ourselves. And defining ourselves as a negative, uh, I think, just confuses people and doesn't, is not as compelling um, in, in terms of explaining what uh, the United States is trying to achieve um, internationally. So with those thoughts, I look forward to discussion. Scott, I hope you'll grill me here, and, and, and we'll have a, have a good time. Thank you all.
Mr. Tong. Um, uh, a terrific speech. Um, I'm Scott Kennedy. I'm uh, with the Freeman Chair here in China, uh, in China Studies at CSIS. Uh, and it's an honor to be able to have this conversation with you um, so that I can thank the person that helped me get my APEC card. Uh, I really appreciate that. No, actually, I want to, you know, as an American citizen, thank you for your service to our country over the many years. Uh, and I want to talk about Hong Kong and what, what's occurring now, but maybe what we can do is just sort of turn back the clock a little bit. When was the first time you were there in Hong Kong? Uh, 1986. Okay. I so went to visit that gentleman sitting in the back there. Okay. He was studying in Beijing. Anyways. Terrific, terrific. So tell us a little bit about what Hong Kong felt like in 1986 and then forward several, you know, 33 years later. Um, in, I, don't, I don't know if there were that many. Hong Kong seemed just like another um, Asian city to me in 1986. It was, uh, uh, I'd been to other places like, like Tokyo, Manila, Seoul and the like. Um, it had a more international character to it, uh, and, and there was certainly the British influence was evident. Um, but it, uh, it, it did not, at the, you know, you, in the 1980s, of course, China was a very separate thing, and, uh, and it was um, not, it didn't feel very Chinese, I guess is what I would yeah, say. Yeah. And so now, over the last three years that you served there and, and the other times that you've come back since, uh, since uh, reversion to Chinese sovereignty in 97, um, what, is, what does that amalgamation feel like to you? Is it drawn out the best of Hong Kong and accentuated it even more uh, to make it a more exciting place to live and do business uh, and uh, to connect to the rest of the region? Well, see, I think the, the Hong Kong success formula in the 70s and 80s was one of, of, of uh, rapid industrialization and the beginnings of uh, development of a financial sector that would be globally competitive. But most of that, that development actually happened a bit later in, in the pro with the prospect of, of return to China becoming very real starting in the early 1980s. So it's an interesting paradox that at the same time that, um, that Hong Kong's return to China was becoming a done deal that, that that was the same period when, when Hong Kong's financial sector started to blossom. I think that some of that's an anticipation of, of opportunities presented by Chinese growth and also just good financial market yes. um, operation and management. Yeah. So I guess it's a way you're this kind of irony when the British and Beijing signed the joint declaration in 1984, peering out 13 years ahead in the future. By that time, actually, Hong Kong was still changing and it's always been changing, so it's never been fixed in stone. Um, in the in the last few few years, uh, as you mentioned, I, you know, I'm from I'm, Washington's my hometown. I've traveled to Hong Kong a lot, uh, and being in Washington, I'm, I'm supposed to be pessimistic all the time. So I'm supposed to ask lots of pessimistic questions, but uh, I, you're going to help us see uh, some of the silver lining or the brighter sides. Um, I was uh, in Hong Kong in, 19, in, in uh, 2014 uh, at the, during the Umbrella Movement. Um, and I haven't been back in the last few weeks, but it, it seems to me that the nature of uh, the, the groups uh, protesting, um, what they're protesting for, the view of Hong Kong society toward them seems to have evolved. Um, 
And I was wondering, what do you see as the biggest change from 2014 in the umbrella movement and what now some are calling the hard hat movement? Um, I hadn't heard that one. The, um, uh, I wasn't in Hong Kong in 2014, so I can't um, give you a definitive suggestion on that. But my sense is that the, the, um, uh, the participation level is higher in, in the current uh, set of, of, of uh, protests and that the issues are more um, fundamental. The, at the, at, in 2014, there was a relatively narrow focus on universal suffrage and uh, disappointment with, with the Beijing proposal for how that would be conducted in chief executive elections. So it was a fairly discreet issue, um, similar to the extradition bill issue, if you will, uh, and, and, uh, and then a, a very discreet protest activity focused on that issue. Um, the interesting thing that's taking place at this time is that that, that discreet issue, which resulted in, in large-scale protests, is then morphed into something that's, that, that, that seems, feels more um, like, a, like a, a more a gut reflection of people's level of anxiety. And that's why I'm you know, speaking out on this and, 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 and encouraging people to think about it, is that that, that, that anxiety could, over time, start to, to threaten Hong Kong's success. I, I, I am still very optimistic because I think the, the key ingredients for Hong Kong's success are still there. And it's very smart people and, and well-intentioned people on many sides that will try to get to, the, to a, a good formula for continued success. But, there, but that, that fundamental concern that people have uh, about the contradictions between the two political systems in, 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 in Hong Kong and in the mainland, I think is something that needs to be reflected upon and then acted upon in in appropriate ways as, as along the lines of what I suggested. Sure. So um, you mentioned this during your speech, uh, this change over the last five years. Um, and those of us who follow China have also recognized changes in China with regard to other types of policies in China. Uh, so not, you know, consistent with the time in which Xi Jinping has, has been China's leader uh, toward other regions in China, toward China's management of its economy, its overall foreign policy. Um, and so it, it raises the question, you know, is, is a Hong Kong with a high degree of autonomy uh, compatible with a Xi Jinping-led China? Um, should we, it, do they just need to make some modest adjustments which really wouldn't threaten Beijing? Or is the way Beijing viewing things is, is through such a dark lens of, of, you know, the need for control that they, that they just couldn't envision themselves taking what you would think would be a few small steps back? So I think that, that um, Hong Kong is a challenging thing for, um, for the Beijing government because for the reasons that you cited. Um, it's, it's um, if you will, irritating to, to the mainland um, and, and uncomfortable that Hong Kong is different even though it's part of China. And why does it need to be that way? And um, why can't we get rid of those different parts that we don't like and keep the different parts that we do like? Yeah. And I think that that's, that's the issue, is that, that the, the parts of Hong Kong that, are, that China, I think, sincerely continues to value uh, are part and parcel with the parts of Hong Kong that they find irritating. And so that, that's where the tolerance comes in. And, and, and uh, having a philosophy that, that allows 
um, Hong Kong to be Hong Kong. And, and you do see that. I mean, the, there, you know, there's been this discussion lately about, about um, uh, the, the PLA's role mm -hmm. in Hong Kong, for example. And the conclusion of everyone in that conversation, including the, the PLA people, if you think about what they're actually saying, is that that's a distant prospect and it's not something that would be that anyone is really seriously considering, nor is it necessary. And there's lots of reasons to think that it won't happen or that it's, it's not necessary. Um, and that's in itself a recognition that Hong Kong's different, right? So just sure. extending that a little bit further to, to uh, allow the, the, um, the political space and, and social space that Hong Kong needs in order to thrive, I think, is, is what's necessary. Okay. Um, I got a couple more questions uh, uh, for Kurt and then open it up to the audience. So let's, let's talk a little bit now about sort of governance in Hong Kong and politics. And, you know, Hong Kong, uh, you know, uh, Carrie Lam came into office in 2017. Um, if she were to serve out her, her term, at least her first term, we'd get to January of 2022 and then the election committee would meet. And, um, LegCo um, had elections in 2016 and 2020, they're supposed to have theirs. Currently, I believe it's something like 43 of the 70 seats in LegCo are pro Beijing. Is the ballot box a way uh, for Hong Kongers, uh, Hong Kong residents to try and affect the kind of change sure. that would address some of the concerns they have? Sure, there are constraints on that because of the way the, the Legislative Council is structured, but there's also district council elections. And I think that um, much of what was happening in May and June in particular, to me, felt a little bit like pre-jockeying for the district council elections mm -hmm. in terms of what people were saying and how they were presenting their opinions um, to, the, to the public and, and the kind of um, press that they were trying to get. Now, things have changed a little bit because of the scale of the, of the demonstrations in June. But, the, um, but I do think that there's a, a lot of the um, sort of professional political activity in Hong Kong is being conducted right now with an eye on the November district council elections, okay. November of this year. And then, and then of course, the, the legislative council elections are, are September of next year. So I do think that the, the ballot box is, is, is important and, and it's, a, it's a way for people to reflect. Now the question is who runs and what they say and what their positions are because there's, there's a lot of um, complexity uh, of opinion on, it's not, a, it's not a this side and that side clear cut um, political distinction. Even though people talk about political polarization in Hong Kong, there's a lot of cross opinions and it gets very complex. Um, it's not a, a two-party system by any means. Yes, yes, okay. All right. Thank you. Last, last question. Uh, you mentioned a little bit about American policy or what others can do uh, in terms of engaging with Hong Kong, the public and private level, speaking out about Hong Kong uh, based on our values uh, with Beijing. Um, do you, do you, uh, there is a law in, that the U.S. has, the Hong Kong Policy Act from 1992, that does govern some of what American policy towards Hong Kong would be. Um, I believe in March when uh, the U.S. government uh, reported to Congress on the situation in Hong Kong, they said that Hong Kong's uh, 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 had sufficient but declining autonomy. Uh, so sufficient to maintain the current status but declining. Uh, and since we're a town now where we're thinking about many unconventional types of policies, 
Uh, some folks have raised this idea of, of looking to you know, the fact that Hong Kong currently is a, a different customs territory than mainland China and bring, raising that into question. Uh, it sounds, seems like a pretty radical thing to do, particularly given how central globalization is to Hong Kong and its role as an entrepreneur. Should we be thinking at all or anywhere close to these kind of ideas about uh, Hong Kong's international status and what we could do? Yeah, I thought about that a lot and had some conversations with people on the Hill about it uh, in my previous iteration. And the, um, I think my, my, my view is that the Hong Kong Policy Act is, is fundamentally has served the United States very well um, and that it's a, it's a sound framework and it's also a flexible framework for conduct of affairs um, with Hong Kong. What the, the act, in, in case you're not, folks aren't familiar with it, is a, a, a law which uh, allows, but does not require, but allows the, the US government to treat Hong Kong separately from the rest of China for matters of US law. So in terms of like US tariffs, um, export control law, um, aviation regulations, you name it lots of different types of visas um, the Hong Kong can be treated separately from, uh, from, from the mainland and in recognition of its high degree of autonomy and, and distinctive uh, economic structure. Passed before uh, Hong Kong returned to China in 1997. Uh, and it, it, it works. It's a, it's a good legal structure and, and, and I think it's fundamentally sound. Now the US government can use that structure um, in, in creative ways. Uh, as, as, as necessary, if, if for example, you know, Hong Kong doesn't do a good job in, in, in acting differently than the rest of China, or just in a general sense, um, uh, earning its high score in a specific area of policy, then, then like say for example, there was suddenly a, a real problem with, with overstays of, of people from Hong Kong and the United States on the visa front, then you could adjust the visa policy. But, but, that, but getting rid of the entire framework doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Okay. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Um, I think that's enough to uh, your speech and the questions to get the ball rolling. And we're going to uh, now allow the, ask the audience to, to chime in. If you would, per CSIS policy, I'm sorry, I can't, won't be able to get to everybody. Um, if you just identify yourself, the institution you're from, and if you would keep your comment to a question. We're going to start over here, and then we're going to come around. Yes? The microphone is coming your way. Barry Wood, RTHK in Hong Kong. Um, Mr. Tong, uh, earlier when you were in Hong Kong, you warned that Chinese interference would pose a dire threat to Hong Kong's freedoms. Your remarks today seem far more muted. I wonder, do you think there should be a commission of inquiry into police conduct? Okay, I don't remember ever saying dire threat, but, but uh, the, um, you know, sometimes, when you're being, being a gentle diplomat, things can get amplified. Um, the, uh, uh, I think you know, what I've said today is actually fairly consistent with what I used to say in, in Hong Kong when I got paid by um, the, thank you, uh, taxpayers, by the way, thank you very much. I really Welcome. appreciate it for 30 years, put my kids through college, I appreciate it. The, um, uh, the, on the commission of inquiry question, um, the, there are a lot of voices in Hong Kong now calling for that. And the Hong Kong uh, General Chamber of Commerce, um, the American Chamber of Commerce, uh, quite a lot of, of private business leaders, pro-establishment type folks, have suggested that that would be helpful in calming things down. 
this would be a commission of inquiry to look into what, how the police have handled uh, the demonstrations. Um, my personal view is that that might be helpful if, if, that, were, if that could be done in a way that, that then doesn't create a lot of anxiety among the police force who fundamentally have been handling a very difficult situation fairly well. Not, you know, it's, a, it's a challenging situation. My, my own guess is that the commission might conclude that there's a need for more training uh, and, and, and different approaches to crowd control and th things like that. Um, but the, uh, uh, it, it could be a useful thing. I think there's, there's concern about how the police force would react to that commission. My, my hunch is that that's being considered. Maybe they would need a, a map that would give them instructions on how to get to subway stations more quickly or something like that mm. occasionally. We're going to come right here in front. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. I'm a journalist in Washington. It's a very timely event. Thank you. So much going on in Hong Kong. People are standing, or Hong Kong always was free. And today also they are standing for freedom and democracy. Why? China doesn't want human rights or freedom or free press or free religion. What are they going to lose if they do so? And, and also, how much do you think China is benefiting from Hong Kong? And finally, what is the future now stands for those who have given their lives and continuously standing for freedom? Thank you. So the, um, uh, it's a great question. Um, as an American, I, I fundamentally believe that, that China could be an even better place. Um, I think it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a nice country with nice people, and it would be even more successful if it, if it were more open uh, in terms of its governance, in terms of uh, freedom of expression, freedom of information, uh, and, and, and its political structure. So that's, that's a very American point of view. Um, I, I know that the you know, senior members of the Communist Party don't share that that view, but, um, but, but you know, hope springs eternal. Okay, we're going to go in the fourth row here, the woman with the blue shirt. I think that's blue, my eyes. Hi, um, I'm Ya Wen, the reporter from the Shenzhen Media Group. So the question is for um, Ms. Chang. Uh, for U.S. government, what is uh, the best uh, uh, balance point, as you can suggest, for U.S. government is the engagement and the and the interference. Thank you. Sorry, I'm not quite sure I got it. So what can you suggest for the US government about the Hong Kong issue? What's the best uh, balance point between the engagement and the interference? So I think that, that as, I, as I said, the, the, the best thing for the US government to do is think about things that we can do to help uh, in a sense, in a Machiavellian sense, take advantage of Hong Kong, in a in a generous sense, bolster Hong Kong uh, by having additional um, and and greater engagement um, sets of activities, specific initiatives in 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 trade or in investment, um, in travel and tourism. There's lots of things that we could do to to strengthen our our relationship with with Hong Kong, and I think that that that's really should be the main focus uh, of of activity. Okay, we're going to go all the way in the back there at the white shirt. 
Hi, Ambassador Tong. My name is Jonathan Fong. I'm a Master's of Science and Foreign Service candidate at Georgetown. Uh, my question is, I just want to hear about what you think the implementation of the Greater Bay Area Plan means for Hong Kong's economy as well as Hong Kong's autonomy. Yeah, I think that's an open question. The, um, the, certainly, Hong Kong's, uh, has a, Hong Kong money, I talked about Hong Kong money earlier, has invested a lot in Guangdong in the Pearl River Delta area, the great, you know, now called the Greater Bay Area. And I think that that will continue. The infrastructure investment that's been put in in the region, I think, will accelerate that investment. And the question is, can more sophisticated forms of, of economic interaction between Hong Kong, Macau, and Guangdong be developed based upon the existence of that infrastructure, but also the relaxation of rules in terms of how the three separate economies, because they are quite separate, they have separate currencies, separate legal structures, uh, interact. And in particular, I, would, I think the, the question, the answer to that question will come in around whether services sector um, activity starts to accelerate, whether there's um, increased investment in multiple directions in, in development of technologies or uh, in more ad advanced sectors, because to date it's been mostly, you know, people investing in a factory, and then that good being shipped someplace. M much more sort of standard uh, economic integration formula. And I think the the more the um, uh, sort of service sector advanced types of economic activity would be very interesting. But that will only happen if the rules are are relaxed. Um, so what that means, in fact is because the rules are already relaxed in Hong Kong and, and to a significant extent in Macau, it means relaxing the rules in Guangdong. So there's, there's potential in this greater variation, I put emphasis on the word potential, for it to be another, uh, uh, if you will, a second coming of the southern um, initiative that Deng Xiaoping implemented in, in using Guangdong province as a forerunner in economic liberalization. Um, by, by allowing types of investment, types of economic activity and integration across borders in Guangdong that are not allowed more broadly in China. I don't know if that's going to happen or not, but I think that's the, that's the, the key question. All right, I'm going to take, if it's all right with you, not to throw a curveball at you, but I'm going to take three questions and then, because we're getting a little bit short on time. So I'm going to start with this gentleman here, and then we're going to come to the second row gentleman with the glasses, and then right behind you. Okay. Yes, thanks, um, Ambassador. Uh, Rob Colorina with AIC Investment. Um, the, the Alibaba listing created a lot of potential um, story for the Hong Kong exchange there. You've been there, you know, sounds like three or four decades. Um, could you comment a little bit about the spirit of entrepreneurship? Because um, it, did, it did, see, did seem to change a lot after 1997. Um, Amtam was here, you know, regular doing their door knock. I was curious as to your opinion on, on the um, entrepreneurship spirit. Mm -hmm. All right, so that's the first question. We're going to come to the second row here. Uh, Mike Mercedic, PBS Online NewsHour. Your basic advice to Beijing is to chill out on Hong Kong. Is there anything in the track record of this current leadership that they chill out on anything? <laughs> Okay. Thank you. My name is Zhao Yingfeng. I'm a reporter with the BBC. Um, so could you elaborate on the reasons why this event was postponed? You kind of hinted that 
administration tends to prioritize trade talks over other issues such as Hong Kong. Does it have anything to do with the delay, uh, the meeting between the two presidents and the ongoing trade talk? Mm -hmm. And also, secondly, um, do you think Hong Kong still has sufficient autonomy? What will serve as a clear sign to the U.S. that Hong Kong has lost that sufficient level of uh, autonomy? Thank you. Okay. So you got all three? I think so. Okay. All right. The, um, well, for the first question, I, I, I think the spirit of entrepreneurship in Hong Kong is very strong. Um, there, there's a real willingness to take risks economically, um, to, to invest, to take, take chances. Um, there's a lot of energy, a lot of uh, very, very smart people. The, Hong Kong's, one of its development challenges right now is that it's skewed in the direction of, uh, this might sound familiar to Washington, um, but it's got a lot of lawyers uh, and quite a few bankers and, uh, and, and not so many um, uh, tech geeks. For, and if you're a tech geek, that's not an offensive term. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a badge of honor. The, 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 um, so Hong Kong needs more um, people in, in white t-shirts and blue jeans who really love computers. Uh, and, and I think they're working hard to develop that. Um, to supplement their, their legal structure and the fact they've got a lot of capital and a lot of really good people in marketing and doing business. And so I would, I, I, I'm kind of optimistic about that sector, but, it, but I think it's really going to be a, a, an issue of attracting the right people. So this year's events are, are important from that perspective, and, and I think it's worth keeping an eye on whether uh, they're still able to get um, people in science and technology research or in, in technology development to, to, to come to Hong Kong. Um, uh, next year the same way that they were uh, two years ago. The um, chilling out, I, you know, I, just because there hasn't been a, a huge track record of chilling um, doesn't mean it's not the right advice. And uh, so I think that, that, um, that, that we should continue to give the right advice and that, and that China should. I, I think that, that China is capable of, of, of subtlety. Um, from time to time in its, in its foreign policy. And, and this isn't foreign policy, this is actually internal policy. So uh, I, I remain hopeful that, that the message will get through. And, and, and as I said earlier, I think there are some signs that at least to a certain extent that, that message is, is getting through and, 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 uh, and people in Beijing are thinking seriously about what might work best um, um, for Hong Kong uh, going forward. Um, on the question about the, the uh, rescheduling of, of this event, um, it had to do with getting clearances and, and, uh, and bureaucratic procedures and the like. And, and you know, the government's very complicated and, and uh, con con convoluted beast. Hmm? So you must have anticipated that clearance process being longed. Uh, sure, but, but it, it seems like it was delayed last minute. Things always don't go the way they're supposed to. So, so uh, um, Did you ever receive any pressure from the State Department regarding your talk? Sorry? Did you ever receive any pressure or guidance from the I State Department? From the, when I was working for the State Department, I received pressure from the State Department every regarding day. Regarding the talk today. It's <laughs> constant pressure. It's like, it's like a pressure cooker of, of, of uh, demands. But regarding the talk today. Yeah. So, I, you know, my, my intention in doing this today was not to tweak this whole issue about, about um, you know, uh, who said what and, and, and when and, and, 
as, as I think I made clear in my remarks, I think that the U.S. should be, should be both, both truthful and forthright in expressing its views on Hong Kong and treat it as an important issue set and do the right thing. Uh, and, uh, and I think that that's, um, you know, I'm, I'm got my fingers crossed and I'm hopeful that that's what, uh, what the United States will do. Well, I'll say. Oh, uh, I, you know, you, you started to sound like you were going to use the word red line. And, um, and I actually really don't like that idea. Um, I don't think that it makes sense to uh, establish specific red lines or benchmarks for what, what's sufficient and what's insufficient autonomy um, because it's really a judgment call. Um, you know, Scott mentioned that this, this year's uh, report that, that the State Department put out. I thought it was a well done report. Um, it talked about sufficient but diminished autonomy in Hong Kong. I thought that was a balanced conclusion, um, and, but it's a, a subtle one, and, and I think that that's, um, it's really not helpful to, to establish uh, clear lines in the sand, not because they're going to be crossed, but because it just, it just bends everyone's expectations and point of view, uh, and, and, and they start focusing on that rather than what uh, actual positive action would be going forward. Well. Um, Beijing may be able to have subtle policies. Washington, we're learning, and we're. Well, isn't that we're, what CSIS is for? And that's what we're we're, yeah. we're trying to do. And I appreciate your <laughs> proposal for a change in uniform uh, that maybe we'll implement and go to shorts and t-shirt and, th and shirts. Like, we'll, we'll we'll talk internally about it, I guess, over the next week. Um, maybe slightly delayed, uh, but well worth the wait uh, to to hear from you. And uh, thank you for your remarks today, uh, for your service. All of you, please join me in thanking Ambassador. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Matt. Appreciate it.